Welcome to the Swamp Lakes Podcast. My name is Brandon Day. I'm Brittany Lombos. I'm Hannah Rassanen. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in James and Hannah's living room in Mid-City, New Orleans. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks, post-Mardi Gras edition. We're tired. We're so sleepy. <laughs> Exhausted. And we watched unchallenging movies, I think, today. Thematically rich, yeah. but not really taxing on the brain. No. Yeah, I had, a, I had so much fun. Yeah, it was a great episode. Yeah, this was fabulous. Very Britney-oriented episode, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Even though it was on a selection. <laughs> I felt great watching all of these. Incredible. Thank you so I'm, much, I'm Anna. so glad I can provide. Uh, the last time I saw y'all, we were like drunk and merry in the French Quarter, mm-hmm. in costume, smiling, beaming, in the yeah. beautiful sunshine. Yeah. Yeah, I, had a, I got like really good color from the sun. Yeah. I wore a ghoul mask that covered my entire face, it so I did not so cool, get though. a lick of sun. I was very happy. <laughs> I was like, uh, 50% of people didn't care what I was wearing. 45% of people were very disturbed. Really? And the, Yeah. They looked at me like uh, like they were concerned. They're and then, on mushrooms. Yeah. You're bringing a dark uh, energy uh, out there. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, most people look like beautiful, like peacocks and like, yeah. And then I have this horrible ghoul face. Made them face their inner <laughs> yeah. demons. And then like 5% of people were like, yeah, nice. Like they were really into it. So I, and, and one girl was so petrified that she screamed she did horror. scream wow. a little girl screamed i did feel bad so. <laughs> whatever she shouldn't have been there she couldn't handle it that's right i think i caught a sunburn off of the glow of britney's makeup you had like a full glam look on you looked gorgeous yeah, yeah thanks I, you know i um i got up an extra hour early than i normally do so i had the time to like really like precisely do shit and i had really good lighting this year mm. in my apartment because I have more than one light. Great. <laughs> so it helps out Future so proof. much. Moving up. <laughs> Moving up. It was a lot of fun, though. Um, also, like, embodying Francine Fishpaw, who's probably, like, one of my favorite divine characters mm-hmm. in any John Waters movie. Just because, like, Francine brings that, like, melodramatic campiness that, like, I love in every fucking movie I'm obsessed with. And, like, also puts, like, a drag twist on it. And it's it's beautiful. Yeah. I like being Francine. <laughs> Coming up this next week is going to be French Film Fest at the Britannia. Uh, I'm excited about that because they just changed their seats. They like ripped every seat Incredible. out of the theater and spent their Barbie money on more comfortable seating. Nice. Which, if you've ever been to the Britannia uptown, it, it's a little yeah, especially for a film festival, it, it tests your back a little bit. Right. Mm. So I will be at the Britannia all four or five days of the festival. Incredible. Um, they're playing some good stuff. There's a new movie from um. Francois Ozon, who did Double Lover. Oh. Uh, the new Frederick Wiseman movie is going to play there. Uh, they're playing the original French version of Birdcage. I don't know. Check out the schedule. We will be recapping it gradually after the movies play. That's all the stuff that's going on outside of this room. <laughs> what have y'all been watching since the last time we talked? So um, I watched a movie that came out last year called Cat Person. Uh, me and oh, James, no. yeah, J- James and I both watched it. So it's based on the short story by Kristen Rupenian that was published in the New Yorker in 2017, and it became this like viral sensation. Like everybody was hot and bothered about it, and then it kind of peaked again a couple of years later when. A woman published an essay, like basically 
detailing how like elements of her life were used in the story like plagiarized it was like so basically she was in a relationship with someone who was much older than her which is a part of the story and she broke up with that person and then that person became involved somehow with the author of the story and like she found out about his relationship with her and like took a lot of personal details like the fact that she like the town that it set in the fact that she worked in a movie theater like very specific details so it it wasn't plagiarized exactly but it was like very much inspired by this woman that had never met her before so it's this like weird mix of auto fiction because part of it is based on the author's story part of it is based on this other woman's story and then part of it is fiction it's just like this story has like really hit very strange nerves in the public consciousness so the story was adapted into a film um by Susanna Fogel and I I think probably a lot of people are familiar with the story and the film follows the same kind of trajectory there's this uh, young girl in college she meets this older man who's like kind of attractive but also a little like physically strange or off-putting and they start flirting and then eventually they start a relationship and there's like a real gray area as to like you know whether this man is a threat to her whether she's actually interested in him like she's interested and repulsed and then they have this like really strange like gray area sexual encounter where it's like she's not really enjoying it but she doesn't know how to um how to stop it and it's like exploring the gray areas of dating as a woman and then the movie like kind of tries to get at the multi-genre so there is the director said like women live in a movie with many genres so it's like horror and comedy mixed together and the the film like pulls that together up until like the ending of the short story and then it just goes like completely bananas in the third act into this like like stalking chasing home invasion uh like absolutely like bananas film it kind of sounds like britney lifetime material yeah i don't know yeah i am hooked <laughs> yeah i mean it, it was me <laughs> it was definitely like so the thing that i appreciated about the short story was that it was really like it felt like it was really grappling with the complexity in a real way and the movie is like very stylized and like in the end really abandons like the core kind of um spirit of the story and i like really hated this movie (laughs) i really really did not like it i think it shouldn't have been adapted as a two-hour film i don't think it had enough two hours yeah i don't think it had (laughs) enough meat in it so they fill it with all of this stuff to try to like build out the gender politics in ways that are like not very interesting or Mm. nuanced and like Isabella Rossellini is in it for some reason. I mean, she's beautiful, but <laughs> oh, she's I like a professor. Her. And there are these metaphors about like women being sacrificed and, and killer ants. And anyway, it was just like <laughs> wow. a complete mess. I think the ending like really undercuts the original intention of the story. And I just 
yeah, I really did not like it. I, I just didn't buy that she would be into him at all. Like his creep factor is at a hundred from the very beginning where I think it works better if you kind of get what she could see in him, but also like, you know, being a little creeped out, but it's full on creepy. He's like a horror movie villain it's guy. Like boo and hiss every time he shows up on screen. Yeah. So when she's like flirting with him and going on dates with him, you're like, why? And then it turns <laughs> into a full scale horror thing. You're like, yeah, I could have told you that. That guy was bad news. That's like the movie Fresh. The uh, actor in that was like really charming and cute. And right. So you, a that's way. a good well, point. It, it worked in that. Yeah. But I think the, the part of the point of the story is like there is something that's a little repulsive about him like he is attractive but he's also a little frightening and part of like the title card of this film which i think is like so over the top is that margaret atwood quote that like men are afraid of of what women will say about them and women are afraid that men will kill them yeah and that's like the underlying like tenor of the entire movie but so it's like it he has to be a little creepy and and like physically unappeal I mean he's he's fine he looks fine in this movie I'm not trying to you know but it's I think it's a hard like thing to act where you're like you know still attractive but also someone could be scared of you like you're not mm. completely charming the only critic I know who like went to bat for this movie was Mark Kermode really yeah every American critic like savaged it when it was in mm -hmm. film festival runs and it was like such a disastrous acquisition. Like it was supposed to go to theaters. They bought it for yeah. like a decent amount of money. And then I think the first streaming service that popped up on was on Hoopla. Like <laughs> it really came wow. in at like a low hum. Yeah. I think it's on Hulu now. But, yeah, it uh, is. It had a very like blunderous rollout. Yeah. It works on, on Hulu though. It, yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. such a Hulu. That's where Fresh was. Yeah. Fresh and this or, you know, I think Fresh was much better, but yeah. it definitely, you know, fits that same mold yeah and theoretically i like the idea of like a woman's dating life being a mix of genres and the the film definitely has that but i just like don't i didn't like the horror and i didn't like the comedy so it, <laughs> like neither part of it worked for me i think like if you're expecting it to be a recreation of the short story it's not i think probably you could appreciate it more like as its own piece of art but i just think like i hated the ending it was but it was like fun to look at i don't know there i might be being too hard on it but i really <laughs> i really didn't like it anyway i really want to watch it now yeah. like you, yeah the, you should it's I, not like it's not entertaining yeah. yeah you know what i mean it's yeah i, yeah. I think it's worth I watching see yeah. what this is all about yeah i also did watch fanny and alexander which is complete <laughs> opposite and I really, it was great <laughs> i watched the like it was like the five-hour version on, I think I watched it on the Monday before Mardi Gras or the Sunday, which is bizarre. Is that one Bergman? Yeah. Um, and I I won't say a lot about it, but I was never really compelled to watch it. And then I watched it and it just like, I watched it in one day and it made me cry. And it was supposed to be his last film. Um, and it really does like pull all of, like, it pulls important elements from all of the other films that I've seen by him. So I really, hmm. I really love that. It's really easy to be the hundredth person to say why Cat Person sucks than it is to be the millionth person to say why. Fanny right. Now is great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a exactly. much easier position to be in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Brittany, what have you been watching? 
So um, a little happy and a little sad, a little bit of everything. Mm. So my happy that I watched is um, Après Vous or After You. It's this black French comedy from um, 2003. And it was on... Like some DVD that I have that's like a million years old. It's on a preview. And I've always been like, I really want to watch this. And then I looked it up and for some reason it showed up for like 99 cents on Amazon. So I'm like, let me rent this. Um, I love black comedies and I love like French rom-coms. And it's like the perfect meld of both genres. Uh, It's about it's mostly about like it's a rom-com that's about like male a male friendship which is interesting it's like it keeps that rom-com flavor without like there is like a a woman involved but she's not like sort of the most important hook in this whole like plot but just high level overview of what it's about there is this this guy named Antoine and he is a waiter at this like really fancy restaurant in Paris and it starts off where he's trying to leave to like make it on time for a date with his girlfriend but everyone depends on him for everything that like he's trying to leave and then like shit's falling apart and he's like okay no put this order in or no let me go move this table like you get to understand like okay he's that guy like everyone depends on him um and he just does whatever needs to be done to make things right so he leaves and he takes a shortcut through a closed park to get to his date on time and while he's in the park it's like super late at night um there's a man trying to hang himself from a tree and he's like oh no so like you know um he goes and grabs his body after he tries to hang himself and like cuts him down from the tree (laughs) and this guy is just like super super depressed this um we later find out it's because um his girlfriend left him and Antoine takes him under his wing and he's like I guess I'll bring you home and you can stay with me and then he stays with him and he tries to like jump off the balcony um and it sounds horrible but it's the (laughs) way they do it it's so funny like it's I laughed out loud so much throughout this whole thing (laughs) and he eventually gets him a job at the restaurant he works at as like a sommelier he's like he knows so much about wine and which is even funnier because it's like this depressed guy telling you about like all these like details about like how wine is an experience and blah blah blah. so he gets a job doing that well then Antoine's like I need to find this woman that broke his heart and figure out what's going on and then he finds her and then he starts to fall in love with her so he's sort of having these experiences with her while Louis the the depressed guy who's trying to off himself like doesn't know and there's like all these moments that happen throughout this entire movie that are like so much there's like a ton of secondhand embarrassment but i like movies that make me feel uncomfortable and this was one of them so you're just kind of like covering your face and you're like oh don't do that oh damn it like i don't know but i had so much fun Mm. with it um and there's a lot of fun like early 2000s like french music playing in the background (laughs) so it's a good time so après vous um the fucking sad movie i watched is uh breaking the waves it's, oh my god uh, yeah. oh god Brutal. um <laughs> so a little lvt <laughs> lars von trier movie uh i just never got around to watching it and i put that on like the day after i watched opera and i'm like oh my god 
So I'm, I'm assuming everyone's like seen it or heard of it. I've heard. I've not seen it. Okay, I, it's one of my favorite Von Trier's. Oh, that one and so Dancer sad. in the Dark, right? Are pretty much the two. Yeah, ma- and I, I, you know, I'm a fan of his, but th- those are. This is one of my Those favorites. work for me, and I don't like that guy. So. <laughs> I'm weird <laughs> about his ones. movies. Like, I was surprised that this one, this one was, I got more out of it than any other one I've seen from him. Um, it's super emotional, but like, he treats the characters well, especially the, I don't know, the female character. Like, she goes through a lot of shit, but she's never like, I don't know. Well, that's what's frustrating about him is he like makes you fall in love with a woman who's like got few faults. And then completely punishes them over and over and over again. And by the time he's been doing that for like decades, you're like, come on, man. (laughs) Yeah, I I think in this one, at least she has some agency and is like kind of making her own decisions. It's exciting to see her like blossom a little bit. So, well, the main character, Bess, I think it's Emily Watson that plays her. It's um, she lives in this really small, like isolated Scottish village that's pretty much run by this church. Where a bunch of like old farts tell everybody what to do and women don't have a voice. And I'm like, when I first started watching this, I'm like, is this the 1800s? I'm like, oh shit, it's like 1970. They're just really isolated. (laughs) And she like cleans the church and volunteers her time. And she like talks to God and talks back to herself as God, like has like full on conversations. Um, And they're um, Salon Skarsgård or Jan, his character's Jan in here. He works in an oil rig and eventually like meets her and they fall in love. They get married and like she starts to like sort of come into her own throughout their relationship. And then there's like a freak accident while he's on a rig and he gets paralyzed. And he essentially is like, I still want you to live and I want you to go have all these sexual experiences and I want you to come back and tell me about them. And that starts to happen. And then it, sort of turns like from this like sweet little fairy tale into like this hellscape as like time goes by and like the ending like totally tore me apart but it was so fucking sad but it was really beautiful Mm -hmm. in that there's like a a a last like a very final scene that i don't know i don't want to like spoil it but it was really a beautiful like ending i do love movies about like people with unwavering faith yeah, you know, whether Saint Maud or this yeah. one, and like, yeah, she just truly believes that God is, you know, speaking to her, and she's acting the way that He wants her to act. Yeah, kind of beautiful. Yeah, it was nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it is a really sad movie. Yeah, it's so sad. I know, and it just sucks how like the big thing I got from it was like, how is this all these fucking people letting these like old horrible men that anytime somebody dies and they they have like a funeral, like, all right, you're condemned to hell. <laughs> Moving on. I'm like, what? It's it's wild. Is the difference for this one and Dancer in the Dark and maybe Melancholia too? Is it that like he's actually taking the melodrama like sincerely and not mm-hmm. just torturing the audience versus like Antichrist, Nymphomaniac, the house that Jack built, where he's like very obviously taking gleeful pleasure out of torturing the people watching the movie? You know what I mean? I would, I would agree with that. I will say the more I think about the house that Jack built, the more I do like it. I hate that movie. Because it's a <laughs> the, I still haven't he's seen at least it. like self-referential and is kind of poking fun at himself. Well, that one starts with him like acknowledging what's fucked up about his movies yes. and like that he's aware that what he's doing and can self-critique. And then the second half, like 
turns back around and just does it again. Just right. does it. He just doubles you. Like, you're not going to stop me. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Hamburglar activity. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's the big stuff I've been watching. So what about what about you, James? What have you been well, watching? So I guess since we're talking about movies that made us feel uncomfortable. Oh, God. Yes. Well, there's two. I'll talk about one briefly, but one I really, really admired and one that was one of the most wretched viewing experiences I've had in a long time. Um, the one that I admired, even though I didn't love it, was uh, Husbands from 1970s. It's a John Castavetes film with Peter Falk. John Castavetes, um, where their good friend dies, and they basically decide to leave their children and their wives behind and their jobs and just go on a huge bender and just act like immature assholes get wasted, you know, misogynistic towards women. And um, what I admired about it was like, he does this thing. It's very like cinema verite. It feels like a documentary and he lets the actors just kind of riff. Like there's no real script. They're just sort of, seems like they were actually getting drunk on set, shooting the shit with each other. But the film is really only like three or, it's mostly three or four 20 to 25 minute long scenes where, you know, there's like a rhythm to it right in the beginning. You're like, okay, these guys are acting like fucking assholes. Okay. And then 10 minutes into the scene, you're like, okay, this is kind of boring. Like they're just, they won't stop. And then by like the 20, 25 minute mark, you're like, this is fucking sad. <laughs> and the movie really is just like a really sad depiction of male midlife crisis and wanting to desperately hold on to youth and fun mm-hmm. And like being with your bros and getting drunk while leaving all your real responsibilities behind. And uh, I think it has a pretty powerful ending too, where nothing really happens. They just go on this wild bender. Their wives are waiting for them back at home. And John Castavetes and Peter Falk, uh, they get off the airplane. Like they go on this trip to Europe and they come back and they're like, oh shit, we got to get toys for the kids. And they like stop like an airport mall and just like <laughs> get cheap toys and pathetic they, right and they show back up <laughs> to the house and they're like divvying out okay i'm gonna give them the bear and you give them the hat and <laughs> and then they show up and the kids are like daddy where have you been and like uh you know here's your toys and the kids go back inside and i guess all is okay but not really wow so just kind of like a sort of downer ending but i really liked the camaraderie with the actors i do think it's kind of a painful watch just to watch these guys just be buffoons what's that elaine may movie with cassavetes and peter falk it's like it's them all night is it opening night no uh mikey and nikki oh they're like low-level gangsters i remember good chemistry in that i always i kept calling it like mikey and ike mikey and ike (laughs) 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 it's it's hard to remember the title little pill shaped well and the the thing i watched an interview they did on the dick cavity where they showed up absolutely hammered in in character but like that's the sense you get from the film too is like in one of the final scenes the third guy he decides to stay in europe he's kind of given a tearful goodbye Apparently, like, that was his actual last day of filming, and he was legitimately sad that he couldn't hang out with his best friends anymore. And so it actually, with that context, it is pretty sad. Like, these guys genuinely were best friends, and they're just shooting this movie, having a great time, and then the time has to end, and they're pretty torn up about it. But it's a hard watch. Um, I don't know how much people have a stomach for, like, male been life crisis but i love it yeah i love it too and this is a pretty good one 
Um, the film that me and Hannah watched that I do have to spoil something and like, I guess also give sort of like a trigger warning for this movie. Um, it's called Soft and Quiet. Oh, I watched that recently. That yeah. came out last year. Never oh, heard of this. Oh my God. I, so I had read some reviews. They were like shocking, you know, really pushing the envelope. And the little blurb I had read made it seem like, oh, it's like these Karens that have like a kind of a mixer. Oh, uh, is this the Nazi one? Yeah. Okay, I remember this. So I didn't, I didn't know anything about that yeah. aspect. So we're watching it. And at first I'm like, oh, this is intriguing. These like middle-aged suburban women um and i was expecting there's gonna be catty infighting and it's gonna be uncomfortable cringe and the first like 15 minutes the main woman is carrying a pie to this mixer and she gets there and she takes the tinfoil off and there's a fucking swastika in it and i audibly like me and i were like holy shit did not see that coming and uh the first like 30 minutes of this i was pretty riveted Actually, even though it's disgusting, I mean, they're talking very plainly about, you know, just racist shit. Pure white supremacy. Super white supremacy, racist shit. But there was something kind of transgressive about it. I think it's also, it does a good job of showing how that kind of like community is cultivated and how people who are on the fence are kind of brought into it and how it's like reinforced in a group. It was, but it was really disturbing. They keep like amping each other up. Like there are some like when they had that initial meeting where I'm like, oh, uh, this like this lady's probably gonna be like this is absolutely yeah, yeah, insane. Yeah. But like the more they got her excited about it, and the more that they like twisted like, oh, it's because you're being punished for being white and all these like non. I'm like, oh but, god. But then it go. does go. Unfortunately, they run into a woman in town who has a history with the main character's brother. Um, he essentially raped her. And so they decide they're going to pull a nice prank and go steal her passport because they know where she lives. Yeah, they're going to burn it. And they're going to burn her passport. And then that essentially escalates into a very uncomfortable. I mean, I would put on level of like, I spit on your grave. And, oh, no. it's, but it's yeah. like, it's really it's hard. It's basically to watch. like hate crime snuff film. And it's really fucking uncomfortable. I hated it. I, did not enjoy watching it. I didn't get the point is the main thing. Like, who is this for? Why are you making this? And uh, then the ending was a total cop out. That ending pissed me the fuck off. Yeah. And I just like, it made me angry. Like, why are you making this movie? What is its purpose? And uh, it was really one of the most despicable movies I've seen in a while. I'm sure the director has good intentions. And it like, part of it is showing the pipeline from like, talk to like violent action but it's still like i mean it's just i don't know who is going to benefit from watching it because anybody that is not disgusted by the it's like if if you are the person that this film needs to reach out to then i don't think you would accept the film like you would you wouldn't watch it or it would insult you like and and anybody who would be willing to seek it out is going to be horrified. Not a lot of Nazis sitting down at Canon Bernadale to sit down and watch like a, a fat art film. Right. And like learn a life lesson from yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's my knowledge anyway. Yeah. I mean, maybe. No, you're right. Like <laughs> I kept thinking like I would never, re- I can't, I would never recommend this to anybody. Yeah. For any reason. And I almost like felt like we're 
was a film made just to like be like shocking yeah that's what it felt provocative right and then be like oh no no no, we're trying to make a difference in the world last minute throwing it on right like it felt too sloppy to be purposeful yeah and it the plot is completely contrived too like it's it's kind of ridiculous like the number of like coincidences that that happen in order for everything to unfold the way that it does so it's it's like you're watching something that is completely implausible and then also like horrifying to watch yeah the only props i'll give it is like it was effectively fucked up and made me uncomfortable but to what end i would not recommend it and i would say steer clear of it because i did not know about the nazi stuff i will say though that pie reveal fucking got me yeah Yeah. that was like shocking well and it's like a strawberry pie too so the top is this crusty it looks like it's carved into flesh bleeding yeah Yeah, exactly and then they're like slicing it up so it looks like schlop of intestines you know it's a good movie that does that pretty well is black klansman when they're yeah. like in those basement meetings with the KKK yeah, and the wife yeah. is like serving them pie and milk and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, And they're like plotting hate crimes, but they're eating like home-baked goods. Yeah. And, you know, there's like a sweet surface to all the evil. Right. And that movie makes no apologies for just how grotesque these people are and yeah. how yeah. sickly sweet their attitude yeah, is. Yeah, I thought of that movie while we were watching this because it does a very, yeah, it, it depicts racist white women as just as racist and despicable as the men like the things that they say are equally vile like that was very effective and this was that like made exponential and then like ridiculous and and just disgusting black klansman is a smart movie this is a (laughs) dumb movie (laughs) well i what have you been watching brandon uh i'm gonna continue this like sickly undercurrent of like the betty crocker like homemaker Uh thing um i watched this movie called heavy petting from 1989 oh it is a like sit down talking heads interview with a bunch of like new york city weirdos in the 80s um among them one of the talking heads is david byrne himself (laughs) (laughs) but you know Anne Magnuson, who was the singer for Bongwater, and she's kind of like an it girl fashionista and was in a few movies as well. Uh, Lori Anderson is one of the interviewees. Oh, cool. Abby Hoffman, who's like an activist in like the hippie times. Uh, There's like a wide range of just like weirdos. There's also a few like small business owners, like a mechanic and like a Wall Street guy. It was just like, I guess whoever they could get to sit down in this like black void. You know, those like um, Sears and Roebuck, like black backdrop, like photo shoot kind of setups. Mm -hmm. Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs were also wow. in there. Nice. Uh, Burroughs looked like he was very inconvenienced by the <laughs> fact that he was, was driven there instead of like to shoot up because he was like basically checking his watch. Uh, it was like he was like impatiently waiting for a bus or something. <laughs> um, but all these people are doing interviews about their first sexual experiences and they're all remembering their first kiss, their first thing beyond a kiss Mm -hmm. and like what they thought about sex as children in the 1950s and that's half of the movie and the other half interspersed with that stuff it's like concurrent and even even on top of it is a bunch of like 50s propaganda and pop culture ephemera so like clips of elvis and marilyn monroe and jane mansfield and all these people that were sex symbols of the time Basically answering inter- interviews to the press like, it's okay that I wiggle on stage because you can't have rock and roll without a wiggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one was Elvis, obviously. Uh, <laughs> and like, uh, you know, Marilyn Monroe breathily breathing onto like all these like, uh, men who are trying to hit on her and stuff. And then, you know, those propaganda movies in the 50s that were like, 
don't have sex or you'll immediately get herpes and die. Mm-hmm. Or like this guy smoked a joint and immediately yeah. lost Jump, his mind. Right. Jumped like, out jump a window. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is an aspect to it that's kitsch. And I think by now that sort of like Gen X satire about that era has been so commodified to where if you go to, down to like Fun Rockin' in the, in the quarter and you can buy those like black and white postcards of someone making cookies in the oven or like, I hate my son of a bitch kids. You yeah, know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of right. stuff. And that's kind of what I expected from it at first because it's very ironic and like detached in that way. But the more I was watching it, and these are a lot of artists that I greatly respect, especially Laurie Anderson. Like anytime she's involved in anything, I'm like locked in. Yeah. Something about the vulnerability of them telling their like personal stories about the first time they remember being horny and like how shameful and shrouded that stuff was. Like they didn't know what pregnancy was or how it happened. They didn't know what erections or like semen were. Like it was just like things that they just weren't educated on and they were just kind of guessing and figuring it out juxtaposed with this like gender performance propaganda that was like very insidious like that that sort of leave it to beaver stuff has been mocked to the point where it feels benign now but like with this much of it all at the same time juxtaposed with these people who weren't educated properly about what sex is just felt like really just cruel and broken and just reminded me like of my own life, even in the 90s in Chalmette, um, just that Catholic shame that you're, mm-hmm. you're raised with where it's like anything to do with your like bodily pleasures is something that you should hide and like feel bad about and apologize to God for. Like it actually made me really upset and angry and feel a lot of like vulnerable things myself. So I was expecting this sort of like Gen X apathy and irony. And if you watch the trailer, it's kind of advertised as camp. But the actual movie itself has like a lot of vulnerable moments and like real political things to be like fired up about. Yeah. Mm. It was really interesting. Yeah. And it sounds like it's like we have a lot of the ephemera, but not a lot of the lived experience of the actual people that were growing up during that time. So it's like, like when I think of the fifties, I think of the like leave it to beaver and the Elvis stuff. Father's knows best. Right. Yeah. But not the people that were like, growing into their like puberty and adulthood during that time and what that meant to them and how like the messages they were receiving would have changed like the way that they thought about themselves and their sexuality it's like a clash of like lie and truth yeah back and forth yeah it was just a really interesting movie i've seen it kind of dismissed as like this novelty and it is kind of strange that something like that had theatrical distribution in the 80s like that's hard to picture now something like this would go straight to netflix Mm -hmm. in current times but this is at the height of like independent filmmaking where like something like cat person could premiere at Sundance and actually would get wide distribution and have a bunch of people go watch it, you know? Yeah. Now it's like that is just buried in the streaming deluge of just content. And I think this movie has kind of been dismissed and forgotten as like a novelty in that same way. And I don't know, it's kind of a much stickier, pricklier film than I expected. Hmm. Cool. And if you find any of those people interesting, I mean, you want to hear about David Byrne's first kiss. I mean, where else are you going to hear about it? You know? <laughs> I'd love to hear about that. <laughs> he talks like a space alien. He's like talking about the mechanics of like an open mouth kiss versus a closed mouth kiss. And it's such a weird way of thinking of like humans interacting, um, <laughs> which is what you listen to David Byrne for in the first place. You know? Yeah. And I think we will continue this talk of like the way our parents and institutions uh, fucked us up sexually and psychologically as this episode (laughs) goes along uh, with the leave it to beaver motherhood era. 
really raining terror on America <laughs> as time has gone along. I'm stretching so hard for this segment no, here, guys. I was just going to say, Brandon, you always find the thread that binds, and it never ceases to amaze me. It's an art. Uh, yeah. I hope our tens of listeners really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> and all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. Mrs. Pressman had high hopes for her son, John. John is your best boy, isn't he, Mother? Yes, John. You're my best boy and the best surgeon in town. But the world conspired against him. I told you to take these things out of my eyes. Don't get upset. I, I Take them you. out. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Don't be sorry. Until John found a way to please his mother. Well, you did a good job, John. Add to his collection. All the eyes of the city will be ours. And even get into the movies. Okay, so my topic was like mean moms, nasty moms. And I think after watching all of these films, it's more like like moms that love their children like way too much and hate the rest of the world. Um, I think they're all good. They're all good moms in a way. Yeah, like in a way. There Some are, are better than a others. lot of movies like Mommy Dearest, where yeah. it's just about a mom that is like extremely abusive physically and emotionally and mentally. And there are th- threads of that in some of these films, but like for the most part, it's like mommy loves you and mommy will protect you at all costs. So I picked this topic specifically because I wanted to watch one movie uh, that I've wanted to watch for like over a year called Anguish, which was released in 1987. It was directed by Bigas Luna. So for I, I may have committed category fraud accidentally. I don't think the mommy would have committed category fraud, the movie within the movie. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, and I did not, so this is a movie within a movie, which I did not realize because it's not like explicitly advertised everywhere because that's like a part of the um central like core of twist of the movie um but it opens with like a warning uh that there will be hypnotic sequences (laughs) and like you can run out of the theater if you need to if you're like feeling a sense of panic can we pause here for a second yes okay this movie hooked me as soon as that happened because you're reading this warning in text, yeah. which is what mm-hmm. you're saying. Like, there will be subliminal messages. There's a hypnotic element to the film. Like, it's basically having you co-sign this, like, kind of William Castle thing. Like, you will be put under hypnosis by what you're about to watch. Mm-hmm. While you're reading that, there's a separate warning in audio of someone warning you about the theater you were in. Yeah. And that someone might physically attack you while you're watching the film. And your brain is trying to process the information visually and the audio half at the same time. And it's really discordant and like disassociative. Yeah. And it really threw me off. I was like trying to listen and read to two separate pieces of information at the same time. It made me nervous. It really put me on edge. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the movie like really pushes that dissonance more and more and more as it goes along. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it opens up with uh, Zelda Rubinstein, who is the medium in the Poltergeist movies, uh, they, with her son, who's played by Michael Lerner. He's, she's a very small woman. He is this big hulking man with these like Coke bottle glasses. So they're like 
they kind of contrast each other in a really disturbing, interesting way. Yeah, I, I do also want to pause real quick. Michael Lerner, who I've seen in like a million movies. Mm-hmm. Never yes. as a lead. Never as a lead. Yeah. And I love when there's a movie where there's like a character actor where you're like, oh, he was in this, that right. and the other. But in this movie, he is like the main, mm-hmm. you know, main guy and half of it sort of. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So the movie within a movie is about this like kind of unhealthy relationship between Zelda Rubinstein and uh, her son. Uh, they have a house that's filled with like strange paraphernalia and uh, pigeons <laughs> and snails. I love the snails. Um, he is an ophthalmologist's assistant and he is does not seem to be great at his job. Um, he makes one of the clients like physically uncomfortable. He's forcing her to put in contacts. And his mother is like overhearing the conversation through this seashell. She has like <laughs> this psychic connection with him. Um, she learns that he's gonna this woman has complained and she wants him to be fired. So she like comes up in this like vengeful psychic wrath uh, compels him to return to her and hypnotizes him and asks him to like bring her this woman's eyes so he starts like going off and murdering people um, and harvesting their eyes so this is like there are a lot of like psychedelic kind of hypnotic scenes the the acting is like a little stilted. It's very gory. There's a lot of like eye gore. And then I would say like a third of the way through the movie, maybe it brings you out a level into the theater where this crowd of people are watching the film that you've been watching, which is called, is it The Mommy? The Mommy. Yeah, The, the Mommy. <laughs> and it's centered around this, there are these two girls, like two teenagers one girl in particular is like very agitated and like confused and like she's she's really terrified of the movie and she wants to leave. And her friend is like it's just a movie, you know, whatever, just calm down. I'm I'm never going to go see another movie with you again. And then it's kind of like shooting to different people in the theater and some people seem to just be like watching the film without being perturbed and some people are like physically agitated or like during the hypnosis scenes they seem to be kind of falling asleep there's one man who's extremely agitated and like keeps checking his watch um and at some point she like gets up from her seat like she actually wants to leave and then she's like hearing the echoes of the mommy in her vo- in her head and then the film and the film within a film start to mirror each other in a really disturbing way. Because Michael Lerner goes to see The Lost World yes. in a movie theater. Right. So there is a film within a film within a film, and he's murdering <laughs> people in the movie theater that he's in. And then the the tone, like, it's jumping back between this, like, kind of straightforward psychedelic like horror film and this more like um stark like different kind of terror in the real world in a way that like I have not seen in another film it was 
very, I don't know. I thought it was very interesting and very, very strange. And it's like the mother, even though there are like multiple stories happening through this like, you know, kind of fractured web of stories, the mother is kind of like omnipresent. And she she says like she's going to have the eyes of the world of the, you know, the city. And so it is kind of like she is this force of violence that transcends through all of these like prisms of media. It's I don't know. It's a really strange, uncomfortable. It's like film. the movies themselves are like mass hypnosis. Right. And she leaves the screen and follows you around. Um, she can't be contained by one form of media. Yeah. It definitely did remind me. Well, first of like demons. Demons and targets sure. were my two titles. But also Scream. Oh the, yeah. The meta the meta con but I was thinking about it in terms of Scream, like Scream is very ironic. Where this felt like a sincere love of the psychology of being scared in a horror film, especially that the main teenage girl who's actually petrified yeah. in the theater, I think that's supposed to be the real protagonist. Like that's how we should experience horror to be fully immersed. Uh, so it seemed like a weird psychedelic celebration of horror as a genre. I think it can also be read as a critique of horror though, because like, I think that she recognizes the film as being actually threatening and, and her friend is like, this isn't a threat. Well, it's two different kinds of audiences, right? There's the yeah. people yeah. who just go out to watch whatever and have fun. Yeah. Right. And there's the people who are actually affected by what they're watching. Yeah. And like, if the movie is like truly evil, that can be a huge gulf in audiences. Like, it can be very separating for us to go out and see something that's like wicked, sitting next to somebody who doesn't really think about what they're watching very much, and yeah. it's just passive entertainment. Yeah. And I think this movie really does hit you where you're most vulnerable if you're a movie fan. Like, it makes you paranoid. I mean, we watch this at home, but imagine yeah. being in a theater watching this. Like, oh my god, you'd be, be paranoid wild. that someone's behind you about to steal your eyeballs or shoot you with a gun, which I felt before. Like. People mm-hmm. talk at movie theaters sometimes like I don't want to shush them because people are fucking gun nuts in America and I don't want to be yeah. shot for shushing somebody. Yeah. Um. You you mentioned Scream. I'm thinking like Scream 2, I think, opens with um, a stabbing in, in a, a movie theater, theater yeah. while they're watching the movie Stab. Right. Yeah. Um, Demons has that sequence or I guess most of the movie where they're locked in a theater mm-hmm. and the exits are blocked and you can't get out. And everyone's mm-hmm. collectively trying to get out. Yeah. 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 And there's just like a mass panic. Um. And also Targets, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but... I haven't seen that uh, one. An early Peter Bogdanovich film, maybe his first, and Boris Karloff is in it, and it's about this guy who goes on a shooting rampage, and he ends up really? targeting people at a drive-in movie theater. I, I, I hadn't seen that, but I was thinking about like the Colorado yeah. shooting. That happened in real life, right. yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I was like, man, this is fucked, because this did kind of happen. Because like, the real theater killer... Not the one in Mommy. Like, you know, Mommy's picking all the eyeballs, but right. he's got, a, like, his weapon is a gun. Yeah. So yeah. It's it was like, super freaky. Yeah. It's like a very stark, like, I like, like, elephant, you know? Like, yeah. the the violence movie. in the Mommy is, kind of like, surreal slasher. And then it's like, like, this is a daytime matinee that they're seeing. So it's it doesn't have mm-hmm. that same aura of, like, oh, this is a movie. It feels more, like, documentary. I mean, it's obviously acted, but, like, it just has a completely different pain of fear. 
And that's where I would say you did not commit category fraud, which is something we talk about a lot. Yeah. We're like, we pick a movie that we want to see. We're trying to like shoehorning it into a topic. <laughs> but like the idea that this man is affected by the movie and he's seen it like dozens of times yeah. and picks, that's why he's um, nervously looking at his watch. He's picking just the right moment right. to hold the audience hostage and talk to his surrogate mommy mm-hmm. on the screen, which is <sighs> Zelda Rubenstein. Yeah. And I think that works in this grander topic because there's this like Freudian thing about as soon as he says the word mommy at the screen, the cops are like, that guy's a freak. (laughs) There's this like kind of understood like Norman Bates kind of psychology about his character because he's so deeply um, tied to this like fictional mommy surrogate in the cinema. So like it's not like those two worlds are separate. Like there is the very vicious real world gun violence versus the sort of outlandish eye collection going on on the screen. But they are interconnected and the mommy is the yeah. piece that like bridges them. If anything, she's like the Uber mommy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She's all her mommy. <laughs> oh, she, um, for me, I think she was the scariest mommy. Yeah. What we oh, watched yeah. today. And I think it's just like, she lives in a castle. Yeah. Like a, a spooky fucking castle with all these like pigeons and shells and little snails and just like it's always raining and dreary when you see yeah. her too. And I don't know. I've Zelda Rubenstein always plays a ma- like magical role. Yeah, she's a great every, whisperer. Yeah, powerful. Yeah, whisper. she has her this voice, like yeah. commanding little whispery voice. Right. That feels like she's casting a spell on me. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I love this is probably like my favorite film with her in it. Yeah. Just because I feel like she was she got to be as like scary as she step aside. Teen witch. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. This definitely felt like a hidden gem. Like I had never even heard of this movie. Yeah. And it's so I mean, maybe not totally ahead of its time. Like you talked about some other films that did the meta thing, but it's unique. Like it really stands alone. It's been hard to see. I mean, I've been wanting yeah. to watch this for years yeah. and it's really even now we had to like get a on the week, full moon yes. channel week pass access on full moon, which is a bullshit company right. that does like puppet but master versus very well. gingerbread man or whatever the fuck. <laughs> but I think it's more powerful than maybe even some of the references we were talking about earlier, just cause it's trying to tap into surrealism as an art form, I'm specifically thinking of Unshan Andalou, which we talked about mm-hmm. on a short films episode. Right. The eyeball gore is like a direct reference to that. Yeah, the snails are a motif in Dolly's right. art, and like the spiral of yes. hypnosis. And yeah, like the the surrealism is very sincere. Like there's a straight up hypnosis scene um, that happens in the mommy, but it goes on for a longer period of time than any actual cheapo slasher would and us watching the audience are watching like an art film you mm-hmm. know it's it's there is a step beyond just regular schlock um and it tries to like tap into like the sort of hypnotic power of cinema mm-hmm. in a way that's very dissociative and if you think about it maybe abstractly like the mommy's probably not a very good movie <laughs> <laughs> but uh, with all these extra layers and all this like dissonance of you trying to place yourself in which theater are you watching it um, it's it's very uncomfortable and very disorienting. Yeah, very effective. Even the end credits where you're sitting there watching 
um, a theater file out. So you're watching yeah. a screen on the screen and the audience dissipates. And there's one person who doesn't move. There's like this last guy who like doesn't get up. Maybe he fell asleep during the movie mm-hmm. or maybe he's dead. Maybe yeah. his eyeballs were taken. Yeah. And you're kind of fixated on this like last standing audience member. And then finally he gets up and leaves. But there's still like tension even through the credits. Um, and you're like looking for the layers of artifice and terror even beyond the end of the story. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty incredible stuff. Yeah. And it seems like this guy was a contemporary of Almodovar's in that um, Madrid spring, yeah. whatever Yeah, that was he called. did um, this other film with Penelope Cruz and um, Javier Bardem, um, Hamon Hamon, and then another one with Javier Bardem called, I think, The Golden Balls. He did a lot of like like comedies, I think. And I, I don't know that he did another like horror movie like this. But yeah, I think he was making films around the same time. I'm trying to remember what that modernist Madrid wave yeah. was called. It, it, I should have looked it up before we start talking, but it, I don't know a lot of filmmakers from that era, but I know there were a bunch. Mm-hmm. And looking at his list of titles, there's a bunch of like really interesting looking movies that either don't have distribution in America or at least are obscure yeah. and have been kind of left behind, at least on the VHS format. Um, I would love to see this in a theater. Mm-hmm. I would love yeah. to see more from this mm-hmm. director. It feels like it just kind of opened a whole new box right. of treasures that we haven't quite gone to yet. Yeah, I think this would be a great like Wildwood. Oh hell movie. Yeah. yeah! That would be. I feel like I would just like freeze at the end. Like I wouldn't want to leave the theater. I don't know. It, it's if you have an opportunity to watch it, you, you should. And it's still on full moon. I think maybe the one instance where we would stay for a Q and A just out of half seconds. This is the story of Beverly Sutphin. Scramble eggs, anybody? A devoted mother. I'm so happy I could chip. You know how I hate the brown word. A loving wife. You think the kids are awake? We could be very quiet. I'm ready. Honey, you're hot tonight. And a suspected murderer. Oh, kids, are you doing your homework? How did America's number one mom turn into one of America's most wanted? So, since I'm here with my crew divine people. Yeah. What's crew divine, James? It's it's your Mardi Gras crew that Hell you do yeah, every year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that I, that's part of our Mardi Gras tra- yeah. tradition is to come and meet you guys and look you at your great- You brought somebody with a leather jacket that said Crybaby on the back this year. I did. Brian Perkins had the full- Very cool. And he had the greaser yeah. back hair. Pompadour. Yeah. With the little strand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I know that John Waters is like a favorite of this podcast. I like John Waters too. I'm maybe not as big of a fan- as some of y'all my but, favorite director yeah yeah I know. um this might be a controversial take but the movie i picked today is probably my favorite john waters film you know who would agree with you is john waters mother and maybe john waters himself interesting i've watched two commentaries and three bonus material like background features on this and over time he's gradually been like it's one of my favorite movies it's my mom's favorite of my movies. <laughs> it might be my best movie. Well, yeah. like, <laughs> and I was going to get to this later, but since you brought up the mom thing, I think part of the reason why I love Serial Mom from 1994 is I think it's the only John Waters movie that I could watch with my mom. Yeah. It's a very palatable version of the mm-hmm. John Waters 
um, style, yeah, but in a way that's very accessible. Like I really think this appeals to probably the widest audience that he's maybe ever appealed to, besides maybe hairspray and hairspray, yeah. hairspray for sure. Yeah, um, but as far as his like satirical black comedies, I think this is the most biggest crowd pleaser. This is the one you can like bring everyone in your family to yeah. and like everyone's gonna freaking like everyone's it. gonna laugh it's got enough of like his bizarre yeah like really niche humor shit that like his super fans will get but at the same time like it's so smart that it could get your mom to like it or like if you watch it with like your siblings and shit everyone's gonna laugh i'd also say what's special it. about his early movies is like it's always about these women who are criminals and like the crime makes them more fabulous yeah and they love playing off the press and like the more evil stuff they do the more the audience loves them and the more the yeah. press loves them yes. and hairspray and crybaby kind of sidestep that impulse in him and this one brings it back Full circle. So yeah. it's like his mainstream version of his earlier stuff. but And also a very timely way because, you know, we're still kind of living in the true crime era. Yeah. yeah. And, but in the 90s, like the tabloid culture was really out of control. And like the interest in serial killers was at an all time high. So it makes sense that he would revisit the subject. So it stars Kathleen Turner, who mm-hmm. we talked about crimes of passion. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, I love her. Yeah, she like, is fucking great. Watching more, like more of her stuff, man, she's a awesome, that awesome voice. Actress. That Lauren Bacall, like yeah. gravelly voice, yeah. Yeah. so good. And her her facial expressions in this movie are perfect. Yeah, she plays uh, the matriarch of the Sutphin family. Her name's Beverly. Uh, she's got this idyllic, you know, middle class family with uh, her husband Eugene, who's a dentist, played by Sam Watterson. Uh, her daughter, Misty, played by Ricky Lake. Uh, and then her son, Chip, played by Matthew <laughs> Lillard. Who, Man, I like Matthew Lillard, too. He's, his first movie. Oh, is it his yeah. first movie? He's okay. so good in here. Yeah. So this is the idyllic middle class nuclear family. But there's someone in the neighborhood who is making obscene phone calls <laughs> <laughs> to a neighbor, calling all sorts of... You know, poor Dottie Hinkle. Dottie Hinkle, yeah. Um, <laughs> we learn very early on that it is actually Beverly who's making <laughs> these obscene phone calls, and soon we figure out like there is a serial killer on the loose. People just start dropping like flies, and it's you know obviously Beverly. What I find very funny about her character is that she is a great mom. She really sticks up for her kids. She's a great partner, a great cook, a great, you know. But when it comes to small slights, um, those <laughs> yeah. little things in life that She's a rule follower. Piss, you, piss you off. Um, I watched an interview this morning with John Waters where he talked about how in his observation that people can kind of handle the big things in life. Um, but when it comes to small Things like being stuck in traffic or losing your keys. That's what drives people truly insane. And that's kind of what you get in this movie. She kills people for a variety of reasons. (laughs) Yeah. She's harassing Dottie for taking her parking spot. Uh, She kills a a teacher for criticizing her son for watching horror movies. And I love that she just loves her son. And she's like, there's no problem with him watching horror movies. He works at a video store uh 
the teacher wants him to see a psychologist, so she runs him over with her car. <laughs> um, she kills a neighbor for not recycling, kills this guy that her that Ricky Lake is super interested in that's out with another chick. Um, chewing gum is another one of her faux pas. Uh, not rewinding videos. It, it's all the, all this like little minutia stuff of like norms of the social fabric. And when people break them, she gets very, very, very upset. And it is like mostly insults to her family specifically, like yes. mm -hmm. with her son, the teacher. Um, she kills the parents of her son's friend because she breaks into their house and sees that the husband just got dental work done by her husband and he's like eating cake and he like shouldn't undoing be. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she like can't stand it. Yeah, and there there's also an element to her character where she is kind of like a lot of the true crime lovers where she is also obsessed with serial killers. She has like yes. memorabilia <laughs> that, under like, her bed. The signed Richard Speck photo is like the funniest part. It's of his head movie. superimposed like beefcake mag, <laughs> yeah. like porno. It's so good. And then there's a scene where she's sitting in bed with like a book of birds and then it like cuts to what she sees and it's just like, it's like a book of serial killers. Okay. Right. That is something that's really brilliant about his work is that every character has a singular obsession. Yeah. So like in private, she's obsessed with serial killers. In public, she's obsessed with birds. The dad is obsessed with the death penalty. The son is obsessed with Herschel Gordon Lewis and like gore films. His best friend is obsessed with vintage porno and Doris Wishman in particular. Mm hmm. Uh, his sister is um, obsessed with swap meets and like flea markets. Like, everyone has one interest and every line of dialogue is always brought back to their singular interest. And everyone's kind of like bringing every conversation right. back to their one thing that they talk about. And, and I think it seems like John Waters loves those people who he doesn't seem to like are normal people that don't have. Yeah. What's your obsession? Weird obsessions. Yeah. yeah. You know. So she gets caught eventually and it turns into this media circus. And then, you know, there's the trial towards the end of the film where she basically capitalizes on her media success and they're selling T-shirts. And it really taps into this like kind of gross. Um, anytime there's some famous case like that, you know, whether it's, I don't know, Jody Aries or the Men Menendez brothers mm -hmm. or there's like a sick media circus and these people turn into like modern day celebrities. So I, I thought that satire was really biting. And uh, she eventually wins the case by kind of pointing out everyone's like all these people that are coming to testify, pointing out how they're fucked up. And she's actually <laughs> the good one. And they eventually turn uh, her life into a film uh, starring Suzanne Summers, so which is great. which is great. You usually hate crime films that in in a courtroom. This Not one does this it well, one. right? Like, no, because it, it's kind of getting. I love the biting satire about. I, I thought it was interesting because he seems to be criticizing our obsession or the media's obsession with these killers, while also kind of being a fan of it himself. Like I've I've watched a few interviews where like he loves true crime. He used to go to trials for fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of like, he has like Patty Hearst like plugged yeah. into this movie, right. and she's in a lot of his like films from like the early nineties. Um, this is my favorite like Patty Hearst moment is mm. when she's got her like white the white song yes. right. after Labor Day. After Fashion Labor has Day. changed. 
um but yeah like um patty hearst and he does i think he, i can't remember her name but she's the only one from the manson family that's still in prison i don't think she ever got released um and oh, all she yeah. did was like drive the car or something like that but he like obsessively like would write her and try to get her out of prison i think there's a christmas card that john wayne gacy painted in prison in oh, her God. like in Beverly's scrapbook that she's flipping through <laughs> and that's not even announced in the movie that's just like ephemera that he's right. collected also there's an audio recording which serial ki- is it Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy yeah, yeah, yeah. John but it's John Waters <laughs> yeah. which I, I thought was very f- but I don't I just as someone that is kind of into true crime and sort of like wrestles with that because it is kind of gross and yeah. messed up but this was sort of a relief to have John Waters kind of say like, you know what? Like we all kind of love this stuff. And, um, the real people that we should be scared of are like normal people. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I thought that was very refreshing. And I think again, why this is my personal favorite is I just find it extremely funny from a joke by joke basis. I'm laughing the whole time through. And I also think it's really accessible for a wide audience Mm -hmm. notable too it's his most expensive movie like this is the most money anyone ever gave him to make a film so like it has real sets and like Mm -hmm. you know a lot of professional actors and it's it's well scripted and tightly made yeah not that he's like in i mean i guess you could say he's in the hollywood system at this point he's like getting hollywood money he refuses to work without it at this point which is why (laughs) it's been so long since the last one yeah but i think those those kind of constraints for me like made this really special yeah it's very obviously one of his best yeah and i love that it really acknowledges that the rage that we feel i mean i don't want to speak for everybody but that people feel at those little inconveniences like that is such a pervasive feeling and there are people throughout the film like expressing that like there's a scene where she's watching her um her neighbor just dumping recycling into the With trash. With the garbage men? Yeah, she, yeah, they're just sitting there like she's brought the garbage uh, like men some Right, right. Yeah, the garbage <laughs> men are like, "Man, she doesn't care anything for the environment. I someone needs to kill her." And she gives them like the, cuz she's like a nice woman, yeah. just gives them little bottles of booze and is like, "Here you go. Thanks for helping us recycle." And the audience <laughs> surrogate is the um punk crowd at the L7 concert. <laughs> Yeah, uh, appearing in the film yes. as camel lips, the camel they, lips, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, padding in their crotches, ca- huge vulvas. <laughs> but they're uh, singing a song called "Gas Chamber" and chanting "Serial Mom, Serial Mom," <laughs> uh, as she like commits crimes in front of a yeah. you know bevy of witnesses. I just, I just want to reiterate how fantastic Kathleen Turner is, and oh, like yeah. she is just perfectly playing the like picture perfect mother and is also completely committed to being a homicidal maniac at the same time normally like there's one scene where she is like chasing down this um her son's friend who saw her murder a woman for not rewinding um her videotapes (laughs) and she kills him with or she kills her with a Lamb hawk, which is great. Okay, while that she's woman wa- was the biggest freak. While she's watching Annie <laughs> getting her right. toes licked to, by, by the dog and really I enjoying mean, that it. That is the the sickly <laughs> sick shit. Yeah, like corrupted heart of America. This woman getting her foot licked by her <laughs> yeah. dog and loving it. What like John Waters does really well, and this reminded me like 
of what I like about Desperate Living is like when he zooms in on like people being disgusting while they're eating food. Yeah. And mm. he can make food look so gross and uncomfortable. Like beyond like that lamb shank part. Um, but the when the couple's tearing up that rotisserie oh, chicken. Yeah. Oh, and just know. sucking it down. <laughs> she's just glaring at them oh, like, she's my birds. So well, <laughs> that's the difference between the like Dreamlander stuff that we really like, like Desperate Living, Female Trouble, like the yeah. early stuff is like, that's him building this whole artificial world where everybody <laughs> is like him brained. Like everyone yeah. has his like freakish obsessions and is like, everyone's their own Charles Manson, you know, in those worlds. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they're fabulous versus the stuff James is likes is like the later career is invading suburbia and yeah. like bringing that subversive element into a more um, leave it to beaver, you know, clandestine environment and like kind of pulling kind of a subversive humor out of the clash of those two tones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I like that in cry baby, the most disgusting thing happening is uh teens making out and you hear the <laughs> smacking of their lips. And it's like a zoom in on And that's tongues. normal American suburban behavior, but it's yeah. more fucked up than divine eating dog shit on camera. Yeah, know? for sure. And then in this one, the lady um who gets murdered by the lamb shank, like her having her feet licked by her dog <laughs> oh, is more upsetting than anything I've seen in his early films. <laughs> um and yeah, like after that, he punishes through Beverly, that guy who uh, w- witnessed the crime where he, she yeah. like lights him on fire in front of the yeah. L7 crowd. But there's this scene that just, it's like the subtlest things, like she's chasing him down in her car and her, like she keeps escaping from people because she just can't help like murdering. So it's like at that point she was arrested and then she got away and her son took her to the movie store and then she's like, well, I have to kill this old woman. She so she's rewind. just like, right. She's just like running around she's like gleeful. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. It's like she absolutely can't help herself. So they're looking for her and then they see uh, the son sees his friend zooming down the street and she barrels after him and just like very happily waves at them. Like it just the complete, like there is no dissonance between the murderous tendencies and her like happy disposition. Well, that's her job as a mom is to enforce the rules. Yeah. Like moms are always saddled with being the boss and like, they have to like make sure everyone acts proper. The dad might come in and like, administer discipline but like the mom is always supposed to be the bad guy that's like don't chew gum in the house don't do this don't do that and she's just doing her job very efficiently yeah Uh, (laughs) i i do think out of all the moms too she is the best mom yeah yeah she's great she supports her kids like for like her son's obsession with like gore and horror her daughter like wanting to sell that like Wee herman doll at the flea market (laughs) um she's just like a, a fabulous mother yeah, she, I, she really is. I was like, that's a good mom. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? The Pee Wee Herman doll and like the kid watching Blood Feast and yeah. his friend watching Double Agent 73, the Chesty <laughs> Wait, Morgan movie. Chester Wait, there's also oh, yeah. a great, the line that got me, and it's just a throwaway line, but it's like, fucking Don Knotts. He's the coolest. <laughs> yeah. Like that made me laugh out. Like nobody has but ever thought that about Don Knotts. Think Knott. about... I mean, I love Don Knotts. No, I, I, I do mean, too. But Steve Buscemi hasn't existed forever. Like you needed a Don Knotts before that, right? <laughs> but like, think about all those pop culture references and how when you watch a movie from a young filmmaker who's just starting, and they try to pack the screen with all these posters and mm-hmm. background TVs and like signals to their taste, and it's like I'm cool because I get it. I'm yeah. like you. I also like Doris Wishman. Yeah, it feels sort of forced and wrong, but like there's just something genuine about 
John Waters like sharing this stuff that he's obsessed with. Like he, he definitely thinks Pee Wee Herman is cool and <laughs> Don Knotts is cool. Yeah, like that's just we're getting a you know insight into his taste. I think like, and I I might have said this, and, and this is just a different way of saying it, but like how he throws all his little obsessions into his obsession with people having obsessions on mm-hmm. things and all the like the specifics like i've never watched a film where franklin mint was said so many times <laughs> and it's so funny but it's almost like he's a genius and he has captured a like worldwide audience into like watching this demented shit yeah. and they don't realize they're watching this like demented shit so it's like it's the ultimate, like, I've, I've, I've caught you now, like, you know, middle America. Yeah. Right. I'm here to fuck you up. But that's why I was saying that. <laughs> it's so cool. The whole, like, being able to watch it with the yes. family. That makes it more subversive. <laughs> more subversive. Yeah. Like, yes. that your mom or dad could watch it and be like, that was a funny movie. And it's like, I don't know. That is. <laughs> the dog licks someone's feet, you know? Like, that to me is really smart <laughs> yeah. to be able to pull that off. Right. That one, this one and I think Polyester are the best like middle yeah. ground between his like early fuck you movies and his later yeah. like uh, everyone can enjoy this movies. Like they kind of get a good balance between those two impulses. Mm. And they're also just riotously funny movies, yeah. which all of his movies are always funnier with a crowd. Sure. Yeah. Man, there's this one line like they're uh, the family's eating dinner and they're starting to suspect that she's the killer. And I think the son says like, um, oh, yeah, my, my friend thinks it's you. And she's like, huh, for someone who doesn't wear a seatbelt, he's awfully nosy. <laughs> and then she immediately leaves so the house. Can, she's going to kill him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so good. Uh, a movie I picked um, was something I don't think any of us had seen before. Nope. Uh, kind of like Anguish, it's been very hard to catch. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's on Tubi. I've been waiting for it to be available for years, and I shoehorned it into this topic, <laughs> as we were discussing earlier. It's called Mom. Mm-hmm. It was released in 1990. It starts as a question about what would you do if your very sweet elderly mother became a werewolf? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this werewolf figure is descending upon Los Angeles and targeting sex workers particularly Uh, and then he takes residence with this elderly woman who's very sweet and she watches her son's news reports about all these different murders that are happening um from this detached point of view she like smiles when she's like oh Oh, beautiful boy (laughs) yeah at first i was like man this woman's sick and then i realized oh she loves her son yeah she's a good mom like all the other moms we're talking about um just not good to other people because eventually nestor devalier uh, the werewolf figure, who I think if more people knew how ridiculous this performance was, this would be a cult classic. Uh, oh, for sure. He has this kind of blind blues man way of right. talking. It's Nesta. Nesta Hey, baby, what's wrong? You shouldn't have done that. Oh, I'm a flesh eater. I, I'm not a werewolf. Uh, I don't have the actor's name handy, but again, another character actor. He's been I've in a seen bunch him, of stuff. Like Blade yeah. Runner. He's the cross-eyed like admiral in a... Uh, Fifth Element was the thing yeah. I recognize him from. So he bites this poor woman um, who is in her, I want to say, late 60s, early 70s. Would be a grandma figure, I think, to most people are in our age range. Yeah. But um, she is the central mom to the newscaster character who's tracking these um, serial killings as they encroach closer on his territory. Um, and then the movie shifts wildly. After she is bitten and becomes deranged with this new cannibal instinct in herself, 
And I think it shifts from a creature feature horror comedy into this weirdly sincere melodrama yeah. about dementia. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Or about growing old yeah. in general. Yeah, yeah. end of and life. And having to be like your parents' caregiver. Yeah. And like if you don't watch them for one second, it could be like so drastic. Yeah, it's like a dynamic flip where all of a sudden your parent is acting like this moody teenager. Yeah. And you have to like lock them in their bedroom <laughs> so they don't hurt themselves and other people. Yeah. So like the mother is bitten by this werewolf guy who is quickly dispensed of um, and not in the picture anymore, but halfway through. And she starts going out at night and just eating people. She eats her own daughter. She eats homeless men. She eats cops. She is not adhering to any discretion about getting caught. (laughs) And her son just becomes more and more ragged trying to cover up his crimes, keep his job, maintain a relationship with his wife who just got pregnant. I think if the movie has anything to say about motherhood at first, it's like, oh, the mom is very sweet, but she's also pressuring her kid into becoming a father and a married man and all these things. It's like, when are you going to get married? Mm-hmm. When are you going to give me a grandson? Uh, and then it shifts more into like her mental facilities are declining. And like, how does he maintain relationships with people while he has to like take care of this woman every second of the day? Yeah. And I kind of expected more of the first half, which was this like goofy VHS era horror comedy. It was reminding me of like elves and Brian (laughs) Stiltskin. Well, and that's what the cover art to the movie looked like too. That's what I was expecting. And it's kind of disappointing, I think, by that metric because it can't afford to do the Rick Baker style transformations into a werewolf. Like it's pretty rough and ready. This is the director's only movie too. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a pretty cheap production. But I think once it shifts into more of a sincere melodrama, it's like heavy piano on the. It's sad. Yeah, really sad it movie. Really sad. It's fucking weird. How yeah. did y'all like get along with that tone shift? Because I actually admired the movie more the more seriously it took his like decline and yeah. like aggression and I was, frustration. I was physically stressed out like <laughs> yeah. watching it, where I'm just like, oh god, this is getting like so deep, and yeah. I thought it was just gonna be this goofy like my mom's a werewolf and. You know, here's her like bizarre rubber mask, and he he he. There's arms all over the place that she's eating. Have you seen Rabid Grannies, the trauma movie? No, it's kind of a similar vibe, oh, but that God. one like ramps up the dead alive like gore and like the moms j- just get more and more monstrous. Yeah, I, I was definitely thinking it was going to be more like dead alive. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was one hundred percent on board with this movie. Hell I yeah. loved the grandma from the very beginning, and I was like, I don't want her to just become this like raving thing you know Mm -hmm. because i loved her character so much she was so like earnestly sweet so then for it to become this like film where she like she's earnestly kind of scared about the changes that are happening to her yeah and she like like it seems like she can't really remember what she does or it's like she's very regretful uh the next day and like there's a scene where he's like locking her in the room and she's screaming at him like let me out i'm i'm scared i'm and it was like really genuinely emotionally mm-hmm. affecting so i think like i i was glad that the movie took the turn that it did because i was just like fully invested in her and i and like she had a real like character arc and it's just nice to be surprised by a movie this cheap and this yeah. like straightforward you're like Oh, my mom's a werewolf. I get where this movie's going, what right. it's going to do. Yeah. And instead it, you know, zags when you expect it to zig. And it's like, oh my God, this is really upsetting. And yeah. I don't like thinking about this, but. Well, like you said, the pivoting, you know, you don't have the budget to do the big creature yeah. stuff. You So you pivot to a more like personal 
story. Yeah. That is actually genuinely affecting. Yeah. Even though the actors aren't up to snuff, maybe, like, the police detective in particular is one of the most <laughs> hilariously ineffectual actors I've ever right. seen in a movie. He's hilariously bad. Yeah, I've he's seen very he's stiff. been in a bunch of stuff too. Though. He was he's in like <laughs> Die Hard Two. Was and... he good in Die Hard Two? I, I think so. <laughs> okay. I thought I didn't think. The, I actually thought that the the male uh, the newscaster was kind of like, kind of like a, a knockoff Kevin Bacon. Type. Or I was thinking Bill Paxton, Fair, like yeah. a bargain bin Bill Paxton. <laughs> but oh my God. He, he tried it. He tried his best. Bill but, Paxton can deliver an over the top performance. I don't know that this guy has it. But I, I think the main, you know. The woman who I remember she was in Mulholland Drive, yeah, too. Um, oh, yeah, gave a really a very sweet, sad performance. I feel bad for mom, you know, mom, yeah, <laughs> yeah, she was, and again, she was a good mom, yeah. And like aging parents has been salient recently, or like aging relatives, mm-hmm. and and it, to me, it was a pretty clear like metaphor for dementia. It's like you know, like wandering outside of your room and like getting lost, Mm -hmm. um, you know, not kind of recognizing your own children and then like really erratic mood swings. I mean, I don't know. I thought that it was like, it dealt with it relatively sensitively for what the movie was. Like, I I don't know. I was just really surprised by it. It's like one of the most thoughtful films about dementia that I've ever seen. (laughs) Like, and I'm like, it's it's true though. Like there's so many other movies that I've done it. Um, was was the big one Amor? Yes, that's exactly oh, yeah. what I was like, thinking. This was of better. I was, yeah, I hate Amor. <laughs> no, it, exactly. Yeah. But that's what I was thinking when, when he's like trying to get her to eat, and she's like, "I can't eat." You know, there are yeah. all of these little parts, and that is exactly what I thought. And this was like had more heart in it. I was saying <laughs> no, that. How crazy um, is yeah. that? Did anybody see that? De- was it the Deborah Logan? Oh, oh the, I haven't seen that. Like the Curse of Deborah Logan Devil. or some shit. That's that kind of rough. Yeah, it's kind of the yeah. same deal. Like, but in that movie, her dementia is what turns her into a monster. So yeah. it's like way more distasteful than this was. And so, to be clear, we're talking about like a cheap, yeah, VHS she is horror. so cheap, and like Casio tone yes. kind of like yeah. scoring until it gets really melodramatic with piano notes towards the end. Uh, but yeah, like. It's a very like bleak film for something this corny and like genre. Yeah, from where it begins with the Devalier guy, like <laughs> right, Mister Devalier, Mister Devalier, he is hilarious. <laughs> he had I, to go away for the movie. Right, 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 right. I struggle with him. I I was glad that he was killed yeah. off when he was. So, <laughs> even though I get his his performance was pretty memorable and campy but yeah. he had to go i think uh i thought of Brittany during the sister's performance oh, uh this like nasty child who is not involved in her mother's life she comes in this like fur coat she's like mother's not gonna talk about her illness is she ill <laughs> like, i know and then her mom's like oh will you be staying oh no i have a friend who's got a place for me and i told her i would come see her all right bye yeah uh <laughs> I was not sad to see that character get dispensed of, <laughs> so funny. but very funny over the top performance. That's the kind of movie this is. It's like a yeah. dumb, cheap yes. horror movie that surprises you with how upsetting it is yeah. in its sincerity. As a complete side note, uh, his wife in the film is an artist and I loved the art Good that art. she made. Yeah. She made a lot of like charcoal, like, or like yes. oil paintings of nude women or like people having sex. And it was like really mu- moody and beautiful. As another aside, the only thing that kind of bothered me was the killing of like the lowest common denominator. Like it's always 
the homeless people or the prostitutes. He does call his mom out for that, though, because she kills a guy and she's like, oh, he wasn't a cop. I didn't kill the undercover cop that was pretending to be a homeless man. And he's like, so if it was a cop, it would have been better. Right. Like that person's more valuable to you. So many layers. They have like an argument (laughs) about that. Yeah. And that, you know, that's the kind of conversation you have with your parents sometimes. I mean, not specifically, you know. Yeah. You're like, you know, yeah. Your mom will complain "Mm." about, um, you know, the homeless people outside the Rouses asking for money. And you're like, I don't know where else they're supposed to be. Like, yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I I found this movie very affecting. And yeah, there were a lot of sincere conversations in it that like, Reminded me of my parents, like, pressuring me to get married or have children, mm-hmm. and then later on, like, pressure in my head about what's going to happen when I yeah. get older and I have to take care of people and I can barely afford to take care of myself. This would be a great film for you to be like, sit down with me, let's watch this together and have a conversation. I don't think they would make it to the end. <laughs> more likely to watch them more, unfortunately. Uh, oh, but I don't want to. <laughs> no, no, no. We do have one more. Speaking of, like, genre conventions we have a very conventional film to mm. cap it all off yes very conventional and um in my opinion the best performance jessica lane has ever given wow mm. so we're gonna talk about hush from 1998 it stars uh gwent paltrow as helen and she um is dating this guy named jackson and they both are these like they're a young cutesy little couple dating they live in new york city and he wants to bring her home to meet his mother and to see this farm that his family has in Kentucky. And his mother, Martha, played by Jessica Lang, is like running this farm by herself. Um, you can almost like sense the minute you see her like walk in the room. Like there's a, a meet cute moment between Helen and Martha where uh, Martha brings breakfast in bed for her son, but a naked Helen is in the bed. And just, you know, she immediately, like, just gets her cigarette out of her pack. Could you imagine meeting your mother-in-law and you're naked and she's clothed and then smokes a and cigarette that- watching oh, you cover God. yourself up? What a power struggle. That's- yeah. what, what did she say? Like, I can't wait to see less of you later. Yeah, downstairs. Oh, yeah. wow. Oof. Yeah, I'm looking so- forward to seeing less of you downstairs. She has a way of, like, so saying good. the most evil possible thing to say, but then laughing afterward. Like, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. Which I've met older women like that. <laughs> yeah, before. yeah, yeah. Uptown lady for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very uptown lady. But uh, Helen eventually gets pregnant and immediately starts vomiting in a meeting at work, which I thought was my favorite thing is like when there's films where somebody's like, oh, I'm pregnant. They just immediately start puking on right. everybody. <laughs> this is one of those movies and it's great. I do like that the guy she pukes on does come to her wedding later. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I think yeah. it's her boss probably. Come through. Yeah. yeah. That's like when someone coughs into a um, a white napkin in a movie and there's a little bit of blood. <laughs> oh, man. Like, oh, okay. I know she's pregnant because she puked. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> so um, she's pregnant and then immediately it's like well let's get married so there's a wedding and there the wedding's in kentucky there's a lot of back and forth from new york Mm -hmm. city to kentucky where it's obvious that martha wants her son back home and mysteriously one night um helen is attacked in her apartment by someone and all they do is grab this very um heartfelt memento of like a locket with a picture of her mother who had passed and then they like kind of slice her stomach a little bit to be like hee hee you're pregnant um let me scare you scares her enough to where her and jackson have this conversation and at the same time like the farm needs work and they want to sell it so he's like well let's just go back 
you know, it's safe there for you to have a kid and raise a kid. Um, and we'll work on the farm to get it into the condition to where we can sell it and actually make money. So they move back and then slowly, uh, Martha starts to do these like little things and you're like, okay, she obviously wants this grandbaby does not want the mother of the mm-hmm. grandbaby and is fucking with her where she's like making, de- you know, medical decisions behind her back with her doctor in this like really small town. So, you know, it's kind of like a, it's like a, everyone knows everyone mm-hmm. um, makes these like sly remarks and will be like, Oh, you know, you're pregnant. It's weird. You know, men aren't, aren't really gonna be sexual with you, huh? Yeah, maybe it's time. Yeah. <laughs> like, maybe it's you, you guys just need some time apart. And then Jackson comes home and she's like, let me get you drunk. And then Helen comes downstairs and she's like, oh, you know, just long, hard day. Like these little. Mm-hmm. Mani- oh. Yeah, she's like constantly she's so smart. She's constantly implying that the other person has confided in her yeah. about some deficiency in the other person. I mean, I think that it's insane that this couple would not just have a conversation like, oh, that was your Roger mom said Ebert's this weird thing. This. He's like, yeah. Are they comatose? Like, right. are they not aware of what's happening? <laughs> or is right. Martha so powerful? <laughs> oh, I think the parallel that's really interesting and grotesque in that is that Martha breeds horses. Yes. And, and she does every part on her own. Yeah. And she like makes sure all the mechanics, kind of like in The Beast, that uh, French film we watched, mm-hmm. like she makes sure that the horses fuck and like yeah. produce horse babies in the right way. Mm-hmm. And here she is breeding herself a grandson yeah. in the exact same way that she breeds horses and manipulates these two people. Uh, the reason that Gwyneth Paltrow gets pregnant in the first place is Martha pokes a hole in her diaphragm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is yes. never like referenced later, but the audience knows. You yeah. Know? But yeah, there's like a really insidious parallel between the right. horse breeding and the grandson breeding. Yeah, but maintenance of lineage. More disturbing than that, though, is the relationship between Martha and her son. Like, Weird. The kissing on the mouth, the like holding each other in a certain, the way she looks at him. Mm-hmm. Like, you yeah. definitely want to fuck your son. Yeah. I mean, it's clear as day. It's surprising they don't raise snails and pigeons together, you know? Or when she like, <laughs> she, like, <laughs> she, like pulls his shirt off and like hoses him down. Yeah. It's like yeah. full of mud. I'm like, oh, sick. I'm like, this is sick yeah. shit. Um, so Jackson had a father who died and it's obvious mm-hmm. that Martha killed this man. And Jackson has a grandmother who is kept in a home. And this woman is like the sassiest like Southern belle mm-hmm. ever. And she's a pleasure every time she's on the screen. A real Kathy Bates type, I think. Yes. She would have killed this role. So she appears at all these functions, like the wedding and any kind of little thing they have. And Martha's like, oh, she's a crazy woman in a wheelchair. Like, don't pay attention to her. Yeah. And then Gwen Paltrow's character, Helen, is like drawn to her and they hit it off and, she, you know, eventually realizes that this woman knows that martha murdered her son and manipulated jackson into thinking that it was his fault and is just like a master manipulator to get like whatever it is that she wants but there is a scene in here that is like one of my favorite scenes ever in a movie like if i had like an all-time 10 it would be whenever martha goes to visit her in the old folks home and she's having a steam bath oh that's pretty good and then she like looks at martha there's something i always wanted to tell you he always smelled like horse shit, Martha. <laughs> and then she like puts like this insanely cold water on and like leaves her alone and is like, she'll need a few more minutes and walks away. 
it's savage. It's incredibly baby Jane coded. Oh. Like it's mm-hmm. the two cronies. One is yes. debilitated, the other one isn't. Yeah, and kind of can leave them to the rot yeah. in their own disability. I love it. Yeah, um, it's pretty fucked up. <laughs> no, um, but at the end, like it, it gets so dark where like she makes a nursery in the house and then Gwen Paltrow's character finds it and she's like, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, I just wanted to surprise you to show what it could look right. like whenever y'all leave. And then I'm going to ship all of I'm this to you. This seems like a huge waste of time. Right. And then she goes, like, Gwent is, like, literally going into labor and running away from this woman. And then she's on the interstate trying to flag down, like, a car. And the one car that stops is mm. Martha. <laughs> and then Martha puts her in that Jeep and brings her right back to the freaking farm. And then does her, like, horse handler delivery of her grandson. Push, push. I am pushing you, bitch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Best line in the movie. So good. <laughs> and she's like, like, Gwen Paltrow is like bleeding all over the place. And she just immediately grabs her grandson and she's like, my baby. And she mm-hmm. walks away and cleans the baby and like just keeps giving her morphine until she like hopefully dies. And then she doesn't. And then Gwen has this amazing moment, like very powerful acting from uh, Miss Gwen Paltrow. Have to yeah. Wait, wait. But also... The husband, what? the husband shows up. Oh, he's a dud. He's a dud, and he show and like his wife has gone through labor. You know, gave birth to this <laughs> let her child. Sleep. Yeah, and no, to let her sleep doesn't go check on his wife yeah. and just goes. Oh, no, 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 no. He does stay with her because the mother keeps trying to bring she him out of the movie. Yeah, out of the room to like play with the baby so she could sneak in and give Gwyneth Paltrow more drugs. The- he's her morphine. Yeah, but he like. Actually, just stay with his wife until she comes back in consciousness. But wouldn't you check on you? You would just sit in the chair and, and just like watch, and watch, yeah. and yeah, wait. Kind of weird. I, well, the, I don't know that he would have like because she was passed out. I mean, I'm, he probably wouldn't have won. I was just bringing that up as an yeah. example that this husband character is no, a he's, dud. Well, he's a loser. Here's the real he problem: sucks. is the last twenty minutes of this movie are a shit show. Yeah, and there was some kind of behind the scenes fuckery going on here because, like, if you watch the trailer. There's a barn burning scene. What? It all came to this violent conclusion in a barn that burned down. I don't know what happened there because that does not happen in this movie. I watched this movie twice, by the way, trying to figure out what was going on here. And if you watch it, there are scenes towards the end where Gwyneth Paltrow has this horrible, unconvincing wig on. That like her hairline's (laughs) wrong. It's pulled too forward, and it's like it's just tinted, not in her angelic baby hair. Uh, This was filmed. Two years before it came out, it came out the same year she won the Oscar for Shakespeare in Love. So I feel like they rushed this to market mm-hmm. knowing that she was having a moment. And there's just something like fucked up about the last 20 minutes. Yeah. And like, I feel like it came to a violent head and they like went back and like changed it. So instead they had like a very stern conversation. <laughs> that, right. I, that scene. was my favorite no, part. That, I, have, weird. I, I have to agree with Brent. That was my issue. Like, like if it would have been like a thing in a well, bar, someone has to die. I was wa- right. I was watching yeah. this movie. I was like, this is a Britney movie. It felt like a lifetime, like lifetime. a straight to yeah. life major studio lifetime. Um, which I dig that aesthetic, but the problem is I've seen other movies that have taken it further, and it never quite wants to take it. Yeah. to a really vi- like the scene with um her visiting her mother, like you should kill her, right? Like, and it won't quite go there. It. And same with the ending. It won't quite go... I feel like there's a different cut where it does do that. Right. And yeah. Like I feel like the original cut, the oh. mom should die, mm-hmm. but they can't quite pull the trigger 
So they kind of do this half-assed, like, a stern talking to and a slap. Or was it even worse than her dying, having everything exposed and her son being like, Taking the grandchild away from her. Imagine them having a violent clash in a barn. It burns down. I know that some part of this happened. Either character dying in that fight works. Like, if Gwyneth Paltrow dies... And the mother and the son raise the baby together. Yeah. That's fucked up and weird. I, I would, I would like that ending. Or the sort of haze codish ending where, like, the woman we all know is a villain dies in that barn fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's at least still cathartic in a release. What if they were prepping us for Hush too? <laughs> and like, it's- too Hush, too furious. <laughs> too Hush, too furious. And Martha goes to New York, <laughs> and like starts manipulating yeah. the grandson. Very VC Andrews. This okay. happens in yeah. like the but Flowers and The whole series. reveal of like she has the murder <laughs> weapon that killed his father and she drops it in the sound. Sweaty, it's the sweaty same stuff. sound. Yeah. The same. And then in that moment, he just turns a <laughs> right. 180 like, fuck you, mom. I don't ever want to <laughs> yeah. see you again. <laughs> you lied. Something oh, about that was just strange. Uh, I just <laughs> I love how like Gwyneth Paltrow's character was like dying and then she wakes up and she's like, looks like a spring chicken and right. has this massive, like very well thought out monologue. A presentation, <laughs> if you will. It's, yeah, presentation. Yeah. I feel like how clear eyed she is finally. Right. But it just feels like. <laughs> like so great. So normally these movies are impossible for me to watch because I cannot stand like sabotage movies. They mm-hmm. really bother me. This did not because he was just such a dope. Like he had no idea what was going not on. Present. He just loves his mommy. Like on New Year's, he's with uh, his mom and like he kisses his mom and Gwyneth Paltrow is like off somewhere. That's and- the good Freudian shit though. That shit made me uncomfortable more than anything else in the movie. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, if I was Gwyneth Paltrow, I would be like, I, I need to. But this is but not. If he was me. watching the mommy in a theater, he'd be activated like the Manchurian yeah, yeah, yeah. candidate. But, and, but also, and, and, <laughs> <laughs> but then like it's like everything that his mother is doing. Like Gwyneth Paltrow says, like, oh, your mom said. I told the doctor I want to have the birth at home and I don't. And he's like, oh, well, she's just doing it's like he's he's absolutely thoughtless. And then in the last 20 minutes, Gwyneth Paltrow has like a three minute speech and he's like, <laughs> you're right. And everything has been a lie. And I, you know, and completely it just comes he's out. He's so easy complete, to manipulate. No, yeah. It's yeah. like it, it does not feel <laughs> But natural. even when he's like wanting to have sex with his wife, he that New Year's scene like. Don't have sex with your wife in the mom's house. In a public forum? Like in the living room? Like where his mother can go to the top of the stairs and look down upon him. And like like, smoke a cigarette and watch. Wow. Let's talk about why these Lifetime style movies are attractive. Theoretically, if you're like looking at this from a feminist lens, you're supposed to be like, oh, these women are seen as manipulative and corruptive and like this is supposed to be bad for feminism. But really, how often are women given this media of a They're role so in Hollywood? Smart, though. Yeah. It's like finally I get to see a woman do something actively yeah. on screen. And like he is so ineffectual and to the side. Like <laughs> yeah. we don't care about any of his <laughs> thoughts or decisions because they're completely irrelevant to the power struggle between these two women at the Again, center. he's like bargain bin James Marsden. <laughs> yeah. He is. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why Eber gave this a bad review. Is like, this guy is catatonic. He's not a living sentient being. <laughs> but 
I get the appeal of watching these two women clash. Yeah. I wish the clash was a little more physically violent towards the end for like a sense of relief. I'm gonna have to look at the special features on the DVD to see. I would if love to like see like a, a Blu-ray yeah. restoration yeah. of the original ending. Oh that would God. like really clear some things up. What for if me. a Criterion takes yeah. it? People really want to see Phase Four reassembled. I really want to see the end of Hush. <laughs> like, more Hush. Yeah. Or um, what's the Butterfly Effect? <laughs> No, what's the Orson Welles movie we watched that was like completely fucked the studio? Oh, the Magnificent Ambersons? Yeah, Yeah. I want to see like the hush over the Magnificent Ambersons. But like, there's something about these two women who are like, I really love Gwyneth Paltrow in this era. I think she was great. Like pre-Goop, Gwyneth is Mm -hmm. fantastic. Which I actually watched a movie a couple days before this one, Sliding Doors. Oh, I want to see that. Which I never seen. Where she has like brown hair and blonde hair. Yeah, or she has a different haircut and... but I watched it because of the butterfly effect. I'm like, oh, I want these like <laughs> oh alternate timeline movies. Yeah. And like that movie is very middle of the road, but she's charming in it. Who else is giving what she gave in that era right now? Like Hunter Schaefer, maybe? Like there's nobody doing that exact waspy, blonde mm-hmm. waif of a person the way that she was at that time. And like she's very good in this movie. Mm-hmm. Jessica yeah. Lang is very good in this movie. This movie doesn't serve them particularly no. well, oh, but I like really? watching them fight back yeah. and forth. I just think like to me the if it was a better script, then it would have been more compelling. Like the hand that rocks the cradle, like the Ooh, manipulation yeah. in that movie feels masterful and it feels real. Like I someone could manipulate like my husband or my wife in this way, but this movie is just like it. It just doesn't make any sense. This movie needed Julianne Moore as a stern business bitch that gets killed in <laughs> a rain right. of falling well, glass. And that's exactly. I was like, <laughs> in these types of, there's always one person who is like. I know what's really going oh, on Debbie and Nazar. I'm going to go, yeah. Yeah, should have been. <laughs> right, no, exactly. Yes. And I was like, Jessica Lang is about to burn this old woman in the steam bath. And then she just makes it cold and then she leaves. Oh, Debbie Mazar was uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's friend in New York who has no effect oh, on the story no, whatsoever. No, no. Right, right. She shows <laughs> but she's just so Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> I love she's her, a New York Jew. Yeah. No effect. I'm from New York. But it was like, it was like a half a... B- it was like almost bananas. It was like half a banana. Yeah, it's, right? it's 75% of the way. There. Oh, it's I almost there. How this is like, it's almost like edging as a movie. Yes. And I think that's why I love it so well, much. It takes a while to get to the point where she starts misbehaving right, yeah. too. Yeah. It yes. takes like an hour to really get there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Th- Okay, so I have been trying to find an excuse to make everyone fucking watch Hush for a very long time. <laughs> it's been on like a movie of the month list that I've had for years. And then like the minute that this came yeah. through, I was like, I, yeah, I it's, it's a great pick. I wouldn't say yeah. I yeah. didn't enjoy it. It was just like I saw what it could have yeah. been. Well, and maybe sure. I was projecting like higher expectations onto it. And I do think there was some like very, there was some special sickness with the horses and the idea yeah. of reading. Yeah, Right, exactly. And very like, <laughs> I'm going to like machinate my way into a happy life with a long breed of stallions. Like there's something very weird about that. And that is what it voice. feels like when your mother-in-law is like, I want your body to produce a grandchild for me. It's right. Like, <laughs> yes. I'm breeding stock for your I, weird, sick, like secession fantasy. But I yeah. kind of was bummed that she ended up having a son. When she really wanted a daughter, a daughter. but yeah. Jessica yeah. Lang wanted the son, and but I guess it's to your point, Brittany. Like that's the tragedy of the end. Like you got the thing you wanted, but we're out of your life yeah. for good. And it yeah. also wasn't your choice to do it in the first place. Like she didn't have a son on her own terms either. It was like my diaphragm was like 
right. fucked with yeah. outside of my knowledge. Sick. So, like, this movie has a good, you know, like you said earlier, Hannah, like, all these movies are about mothers that love their kids too much, maybe. Yeah. But, like, this one is a good mother-in-law terror to yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Where it's, like, the main conflict is really between the two women. Um, I would say Serial Mom has maybe a horror about mothers that are too closely tied to their rules enforcement <laughs> role. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mom has a elderly mother's mental decline mm, quality yeah. to it. Yes. And then the mommy is just pure Freudian terror. Like, <laughs> yeah. There's nothing beyond like the very central, like you will never love anyone as much as your mother. Right. Which transcends uh, the screen and like infects <laughs> other people looking upon it. So maybe that is like the most pure version of yeah. this mommy terror. Yeah, it is the mommy movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Incredible. <laughs> would you watch the mommy, the movie within the movie? I think I would. Would you like it as much as Anguish? I no. don't think so. I don't no. think so either, yeah. No. There's something very special about that dissonance between the yeah. multiple layers. Yeah, and the like kind of psychic expansion of the film and the way that it like takes takes you over, but not in an obvious way that where you're like, eyes pop out of your head and you turn into a zombie. It's like, I don't know, very um, invasive. Watch me with a- 